0: Hello and welcome to World of Warbirds, I'm Brian Pierce. I've been wanting to do the P61 Black Widow for a long time. It is just so damn cool. It looks so badass with its big radial engines, twin boom tails like the P38, black paint scheme, and killer firepower. If Batman had been around in World War II, you know that he would have been a Black Widow pilot. But two things have held me back from doing it so far. The first is strictly podcast-related. It's been my policy to hold back some of the cooler aircraft for later. If I do all the popular planes first, is anyone going to stick around for the fairy Battle or the Lysander? Well, maybe. The second reason is that, as a child of Canada, one of the Allied countries, I never thought too much about night fighters. And if I did, it was in terms that this was the enemy's thing. It was Luftwaffe night fighters that hunted the RAF bombers on their night bomber offensive. My father had a boss, who at one time flew in Lanks as a navigator during the war, And he said that they weren't much afraid of the flak, but they did fear the night fighters. So the first question that comes to mind is, did the Brits even have night fighters during the Blitz? And the second would be, why don't we hear about them? I think these questions need to be answered before we start talking about the P-61 Black Widow. For as cool as this aircraft is in almost all aspects, we need to understand where the ideas behind it came from because it didn't just jump into existence. Rather, it was a culmination of knowledge, techniques, and technologies that had come before it. Design and Development When the Nighttime Blitz started, the Brits did have some national memory of aerial night fighting left over from the First World War. For this wasn't the first time the German invaders had flown over the channel to bomb England. In World War I, they had come in zeppelins and Gotha biplane bombers. And although these raids hadn't been particularly effective, the public outcry about them had forced the British to address the problem. They had realized that flying and fighting at night was different and would require some changes to make it work. For example, they had modified some of the Sopwith Camel aircraft for the night roll, including removing the fuselage-mounted Vickers machine guns and replacing them with overwing Lewis guns and moving the cockpit back so the pilot could reload the guns. Having the guns above the wing meant that the glare from them firing wouldn't reach the pilot's eyes and thus ruin his night vision. But, as is so often the case when the battle ends, so does the development of the techniques and technology involved. The concept of night fighting was allowed to languish once again in both the U.S. and Great Britain. The idea that, quote, the bomber will always get through, quote, made planners in both countries figure that trying to come up with fighter interceptors for the day was pretty useless, let alone even thinking about the night. I mean, if the bombers were going to be invincible during the daylight hours, why would you even bother with the hassle of going at night? And if you wouldn't be able to shoot them down in the daytime when you can actually see them, you might as well forget about nighttime when you wouldn't be able to find them at all. Of course, the Battle of Britain changed all that. The RAF's few showed that the bomber did not necessarily have to get through. Actually, the RAF's hurricanes and spitfires shot down so many Luftwaffe bombers that the Germans were obliged to switch to night attack. And then the Brits were forced to scramble to look for dusty old plans from World War I on how to fight at night again. There were some older technologies that were still around to help. Ground-based searchlights would serve throughout the war to try to illuminate intruding aircraft for the fighters to go after. Giant steampunk-looking acoustical locators with big conical horns were used to focus incoming sound and these worked somewhat. Other experiments to detect radio waves emitted by the spark plugs of aircraft engines or the infrared radiation from engine exhaust gases had failed so far. But they did have one new technology that did work, which was radar. Again, it was ground-based, which worked fine for the Battle of Britain during the day, when controllers would be able to vector their intercepting fighters to within 5 to 10 miles of the bombers, where the pilot's own eyes could do the detection work from that point on. But at night, 5 to 10 miles was about as good as 500 miles. In November 1940, the Luftwaffe attacked Coventry at night, and although the RAF sortied 165 aircraft they didn't bring down even one of the 437 attacking bombers. So, the RAF began sticking smaller-sized radar units in the aircraft that they had available, such as the U.S.-built twin-engine Boston bomber. The ground radar controllers could vector the Bostons to within a few miles of the enemy, where the airborne radar operator would take over, and get the night fighter to within visual range, where the pilot would take over. It was better than nothing, but still not great. In one of the last mass night raids of the Blitz, the Luftwaffe sent 507 bombers, and the RAF night fighters were only able to knock down seven. Now, there were U.S. officers in England at the time, tasked to observe the Battle of Britain and send back reports of lessons learned. One of these lessons was the need for effective night-fighting aircraft. Colonel Carl A. Spatz, future head of the U.S. bombing campaign against Germany, put the need for a dedicated night-fighter aircraft way up there on the USAAF's wish list. And it was from this wish list that the P-61 Was born. Prototypes. Now when I say wish list we should emphasize the word wish. That's because the planners were asking for a lot. The new aircraft had to be able to operate at high altitude and have a long endurance to be able to patrol continuously for at least eight hours. As fighting in the dark meant that fights would probably be a very short duration in the darkness, the aircraft needed to have very heavy armament to make the shots count. And this was to be mounted in, in quotes, multiple gun turrets. Also, the new plane had to be able to carry around the heavy radar units of the time. And oh yeah, it has to be just as fast as a normal regular day fighter. Jack Northrop realized these speed, altitude, fuel, and armament requirements would mean quite a large aircraft requiring multiple engines. So, Northrop started with two Pratt & Whitney R-2810 double wasp 18-cylinder radials producing 2,000 horsepower each. He mounted these in two engine nacelles, attached to twin tail booms, and placed the fuselage gondola between the two. In the fuselage would be the three-man crew, the radar unit, and the gun turrets. On the ground, the aircraft stood on tricycle landing gear. The wings had full-length ZAP flaps, which is a flap design where, as the flap slides back, an arm in the track pushes the flap down. It was named after its designer, Edward F. Zaparka. Look, I've been involved in aviation for 25 years, and I just learned that. The control surfaces on the wing were not conventional. It had small guide ailerons for some roll control, but also had something called spoilerons, which were spoilers located outboard of the engine nacelle in front of the flaps and provided about half the roll control required at low speed and most of it required at high speed. All of this complex arrangement was to allow for great control while keeping the landing speed for this very large aircraft as low as possible. Also, in the wings were placed four forward-firing 20mm cannon, giving the aircraft massive firepower. Massive was a good adjective to use. The new fighter would be as big and heavy as many medium bombers at the time. Between December 1940 and January 1941, the design was submitted to the Army Air Material Command and they were pleased writing up a letter of authority for purchase on the 17th of December for two prototypes and naming the new aircraft the XP-61. After some examinations of a static mock-up, it was decided to move the Hispano M2 cannon from the wings to the front fuselage in a ventral step. Clustering the cannon there eliminated the need to worry about aiming the wing guns to converge at a point ahead of the aircraft. Without this convergence, aiming would be easier and would lead to a tight group of deadly 20mm cannon shells. There was an added advantage that taking the guns and ammo bays out of the wings cleared up extra space for 106 more gallons of fuel bringing the capacity up to 646 gallons. If even more fuel was needed for longer patrols, hard points and plumbing were added below the wings for external fuel tanks. Flame arresters were also placed on the engine exhausts to eliminate this dangerous visual calling card. The engines were upgraded to R-2800-25S double wasps, which turned 12-foot-diameter Curtis four-blade propellers. The engines were fitted with two-stage, two-speed superchargers, and although turbo superchargers were contemplated, they were rejected in order to save weight, but sacrificing about 50 miles per hour in speed and 10,000 feet in operational altitude. As we've said before, Everything in aircraft design is a compromise and the P61 prototype was getting a little bit fat. On the dorsal surface of the aircraft was mounted a remote controlled turret with four horizontally arranged 50 caliber machine guns. This remote controlled firing system was very similar to the one in the B-29 where either the gunner or the radio operator gunner could control the turret. Or the pilot could take over and lock it into a forward firing configuration to add the 450s to the 420mm cannon fire, just in case you're attacking Godzilla or something. In the big nose was mounted a scanning radio transmitter which had a range of five miles. The XP 61 radar operator would find the targets on his scope and would pass on verbal steering instructions to the pilot. Once close enough, the pilot had his own smaller scope in his instrument panel to complete the radar interception up until the target could be seen visually. And to help with that, 5.8 power night binoculars were mounted in the cockpit and connected to the optical gun sight. The P 61 was painted with a special glossy paint to help it hide in the darkened skies by reflecting light away rather than down. It was christened the Black Widow, and I can't think of a better name for this warbird. Production and Operational History There were many problems in getting the P 61 built and ready for war. As the night fighter was on the experimental side of the planning ledger it had a lower priority than other aircraft for which it competed for parts. For example, it needed the same gun turret equipment as the B-29, which of course was in great demand in the Pacific. Northrup's plant in Hawthorne, California also had some labor problems. And there were design kinks to be worked out, such as tail buffeting, and the plexiglass turrets had the annoying habit of getting soft and melting in the hot California sun. Also, the Black Widow was pricey. For the cost of just one P61, you could have three P38 Lightnings or two C47 transports. For these reasons, this super-advanced aircraft took some time getting off the production line and into operational use. The first production aircraft were sent to the 348th Night Fighter Squadron at Orlando Army Air Force Base, Florida, where night fighter crews were being trained. Before getting the Black Widows, U.S. night fighting crews were using British Bristol Beaufighters, and Douglas P-70 Havocs. In early 1944, the 422nd and the 425th night fighter squadrons shipped out to Europe and immediately ran into controversy. Some USAAF generals thought that the British-built de Havilland Mosquito night fighters were faster and would be better for the job than their own made-in-the-USA P-61s so several competitions were run to see which plane was better. Here's the thing. The British had a limited supply of their coveted mozzies and didn't really want to share them. Admittedly, for this rule, the two aircraft were pretty close in performance, but it is suspected that the Brits let the Yanks win so they wouldn't have to hand over any of their precious mosquitoes. P-61s were first used in England to attack and shoot down V-1 buzz bombs. In August 1944, the 422nd Night Fighter Squadron transferred to mont France, where the serious business of intercepting and dispatching Junkers JU-188s, 52s, BF-110s, FW-190s, Dornier DO 217s and Henkel HE 111s began. When the Luftwaffe lessened its night attack activity, the P 61s went on the offensive with night intruder missions going after train and rail targets. During the Battle of the Bulge, the P 61s of the 422nd and 425th squadrons were the only U.S. aircraft able to fly at night and in the bad weather to support the encircled 101st Airborne. In March and April 1945, during the Battle of the Ruhr Pocket, the German forces called on the Luftwaffe to airlift supplies to their surrounded troops at night. The P-61s were given the job of preventing this, and U.S. microwave ground radar controllers vectored the Black Widows in to score 14 kills, which were mainly Ju-52 transports. When they weren't hunting other aircraft, the Black Widows continued their night intruder missions, sometimes using drop tanks filled with napalm to blaze up a target and then follow up with strafing, high-velocity aircraft rockets, HVARs, or high-explosive bombs and incendiary bombs. Although the P-61s in Europe were doing their bit for the war effort, they were hampered the whole time by a shortage of replacement aircraft and spare parts. Radars were finicky and very precise instruments, and so one missing gizmo was enough to make the whole unit useless. Although operationally the P-61s arrived too late to do much in the Mediterranean, they did perform good service in the Pacific. As U.S. forces had gradually seized control of the day, the Japanese had begun doing more and more of their flying under the cover of darkness. Especially maddening was the so-called Bed-Check Charlie lone aircraft that the Japanese would send over just after dark to annoy and harass U.S. forces on the ground. The U.S. had used a variety of aircraft including P-38s and P-70s to try to hunt down Japanese nighttime incursions to limited success. In 1944, U.S. forces were building airfields on Saipan for the B-29 campaign against the home islands. The Japanese obviously wanted to disrupt this activity and began sending swarms of Betty bombers at night on raids and the 6th Night Fighter Squadron was sent to help. The 6th had been frustrated with not much success previously at Guadalcanal in combating Bedcheck Charlie Japanese aircraft with P-70 and P-38s, allowing B-17s and B-24s at Henderson Field to be damaged and several U.S. ships to be damaged and sunk by Japanese night raids at Bougainville. In June 1944, the 6th received the P-61 Black Widow and its fortunes started to change. It knocked down its first Betty on June 30. And as they got used to their new aircraft and the techniques for interception, they got better and better at stopping Japanese raids. The P-61 crews would get early detection from ground-based microwave radars And another radar, known as Lil' Abner, would let them know of the height of the incoming raid. P61s of the 6th were able to intercept 27 of 37 raids and claim 3 kills. Once intercepted, even if they were not shot down, the raiders would often dump their bombs early and make a run for it. After shooting down 5 more raiders, the presence of the 6th caused the Japanese to give up trying to raid until the end of the war. It could well be that the last Japanese aircraft destroyed in combat before the Japanese surrender was literally splashed by a P-61 named Lady in the Dark of the 548th Night Fighter Squadron on the night of 14-15 to 15 August 1945. Lieutenant Robert W. Clyde and radar operator Lieutenant Bruce K. LaFord spotted and intercepted a KI-44 Tojo, which basically looks like a Japanese P-47 Thunderbolt. When the pilot of the Tojo realized that he was in the sights of a P-61, he dove down to skim the waves of the ocean. And after a bunch of wild, evasive flying, he hit the water and exploded. Clyde and La were never officially credited with this possible final kill of the war, which was a common enough thing for night-fighting pilots. Theirs was a lonely war, hidden in the dark, without anybody else to confirm victories. These pilots had to realize that it would be much more difficult for them to rack up official kills and to become aces. They would have to be content that they were doing their part without the same kind of glory that their sunburned brethren got. The P61s served for another five years operationally after the war. They were renamed F61s in 1948, and many of their squadrons were gradually switched over to F81 Twin Mustangs, the last being the 339th in May 1950. So normally at this time in the show, I would tell a story of a pilot or pilots, their career, their exploits. This time, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to invite you, once you're done this episode, to go check out Dan Mercurio's Warbirds Tales from Above. Now, while I tend to focus on the nuts and bolts and rivets of the Warbirds, Dan really focuses on the heart of pilots the blood and guts great aerial stories and uh, i'm a big fan of his stuff so as i'm recording this he has promised a p61 black widow story now i haven't heard it yet but as soon as it drops i for sure will be listening to it so go check out warbirds tales from above and if you drop him a comment, Let them know that you came to visit because Brian from World of Warbirds sent you. Alright, so let's wrap up this show by talking about some survivors. There are four surviving Black Widows. There is one at the Beijing Air and Space Museum that had been assigned to the China-Burma-India Theater and was grabbed by the Chinese forces at the end of the war. Another can be seen at the National Air and Space Museum in Chantilly, Virginia, as well as another at the National Museum of the U.S. Air Force at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Dayton, Ohio. Most encouraging is serial number 239445, a P-61B that is being restored to flying status by the Mid-Atlantic Air Museum in Reading, Pennsylvania. It crashed onto a mountaintop in Papua New Guinea at 7,000 feet ASL, was recovered, and although much work has been done, there are still years more work to get this Black Widow back into the air. Now, don't get me wrong, it would be great to see this aircraft flying again. On the other hand, maybe it is fitting that we don't get to see it flying. This aircraft that was conceived, designed, designed, and built to fly and hunt in the dark. Not many would have seen it in action in its natural habitat, and for an enemy pilot with a P-61 tracking in on its radar signature in the dark, the flare of the Black Widow's guns might have been the last thing he would have seen at all. If you get some joy out of listening, please consider supporting the podcast by making a modest donation via PayPal. My PayPal address is at wowb17. That's at World of Warbird17, or if you want to remember it this way, at wowb17. You'll have my eternal gratitude.